it was a, a facsimile of uh, a home in Berlin or in Vienna, and it instantly made people from Europe feel comfortable with the same books on the shelves. The cooking smells were the same as in their mother's kitchens. It made them feel immediately that they were in a, a, a friendly place, a place where they could, they weren't just immigrants, they, they could be themselves. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. An obscure figure who turns out like Zelig to be at the center of everything in 30s and 40s Hollywood. I talked to biographer Donna Rifkind about screenwriter and salon hostess Salka Fiertel. And silent film accompanist Ben Modell tells us about playing for silence without movie theaters on the internet. All in the podcast that takes the distance out of social distancing in the vintage film world, Nitrateville Radio. Stay in touch safely by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. Thanks. And so, in the short space between one of these podcasts and the next, we find ourselves in the age of coronavirus. Podcasts are pretty well set to thrive in an era of social distancing, bridging the distance germ-free over Skype and Stitcher. But it has affected the world we cover. The TCM Film Festival has been canceled, or at least moved back to TV where it started. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival has been pushed back to fall, and who knows about Pordenone. The theaters that play revivals and documentaries on classic film are also shuttered for now. Even Amazon is delaying your new Blu-rays for more essential products. But you can't stop the love for old movies, which has seen harder days than these. Silent film accompanist Ben Modell, last here to talk about his Douglas MacLean Kickstarter, has taken the future of vintage film into his own hands with something called the Silent Comedy Watch Party, in which he plays for silent movies live on YouTube from his apartment in New York, complete with intros by fellow frequent Nitrateville radio guest Steve Massa. I called him up to talk about it, and we started by talking about what Ben would have been doing this week. We're recording this on March 24th, so this afternoon I would have had a show of the Patsy at a college in Brooklyn and would have played for safety last at the Alamo Draft House this past Sunday and uh, would be, well, I am still getting ready to teach my class at Wesleyan tomorrow, uh, and this coming Sunday I would normally have been getting uh, heading up to the AFI Silver to play for a program of the Lincoln Cycle. And the following week would have been the Denver Silent Film Festival. 
and on and on. You did manage to go out and do your Idaho thing, though, I saw. When was that? Well, that was in February. Okay. That was in February, and I was in, I was, uh, I was in Beatrice, Nebraska uh, a couple weeks ago. No, that was three weeks ago. But we were already, you know, uh, in New York, we were being super cautious. And I'm in Nebraska, and some people are cautiously waving elbows at me, and some people just put their hand right out. And there was, you know, Purell everywhere, but <laughs> nobody was on lockdown just yet. That was, yeah, that was three weeks ago, and that was uh, a great weekend of, of shows. And we <laughs> we discovered that, oh, now I'm going up on his name, but there's a director, a, a guy who's a director at Vitagraph, George, I'm going to say Baker, George D. Baker, who apparently is from Beatrice, Nebraska, which is a tiny, it's a tiny town, but it's a, <laughs> they're, you know... The next town over is where Harold Lloyd is from. Right. Uh, I only know this because Steve Massa and I have become big fans of the Vitagraph product, and in particular the comedies. And the really good ones seem to be directed by this guy, George Baker. And I was chatting with somebody from the, 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 the Gage County Museum. And they have his stuff, I think. And he was a photographer in Beatrice. And uh, the woman who runs the, the museum accessed the drive and showed me some of the photographs and they're 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 really wonderful hmm. and taken in the late aughts but there's a sense of composition and uh framing and uh, and uh camera placement and you know uh, you, you can't connect dots randomly but one of the things that you i notice in baker's uh, film set at vitagraph is that there's uh there's a depth uh, and the composition people there's often something happening uh in in the kind of in the foreground and then but there'll still be action that happens upstage of that and sometimes even further upstage than that you always know where you're supposed to be looking but it's all always the groupings of people are very well composed so it's interesting to discover i mean who who knew i mean we were talking right. <laughs> about george baker there was this guy a photographer i think he went he wrote movies in hollywood i said wait george baker i said he worked for vitagraph yeah vitagraph i said Oh wait a second! This this I mean this is like this is an important, at least to me and Steve and the, those of us who watch Vitagraph right. shorts. You know, I feel like this is all taking us back to the the prehistoric era of appreciating silent film when it was deader than dead, and you know the people like William K. Everson would find a print and get together a few friends and show it in whatever passed for a hall that you could get your hands on, projecting right. it on whatever sheet you had handy, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, and here we are again, and, and we have the the new wrinkle of uh, YouTube or Zoom or whatever people are doing stuff on, but uh, there it is. You know, we are we are once again um, a little cluster of people watching these things on somebody's wall. So yeah, it's it's uh, the a return to the world of not caring quite so much about image quality. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't mean that in in a negative way, but you know, uh, those those days of of eight and sixteen millimeter dupes uh, illicit or otherwise um you were just so happy to see it right and i think that we're, we're in that place but for a different reason um be, you know back then you could still go to a movie theater uh and see something 
Right. But right now, you can't leave your house, yeah. depending on what part of the country you're in at the moment. And there's something about that communal experience which is now on hold until dot dot dot. Right. That that we're uh, it is compounding. That's what's really the difference uh, because of the almost total lack of that. The concern about image quality, even for something you've already seen, uh, isn't isn't quite quite so important. Yeah, no, I've I've often thought that like I couldn't stand to watch the prints that made me a silent movie fan now because because oh, yeah. I'm just too precious and you know we we fetishize these careful restorations which are a glorious thing but uh, you know we yeah. all started in that world of see it however you can. And right, kind of back to that. Yeah, we 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 really are, but in a, in a much more of a human con- connection way, as opposed to the sort of drug addict um, <laughs> mania kind of thing. I just want to see it. I just want to see it. I don't I don't care what, if it's needle drop music. I, I just want to see it. And and now it's it's we the human connection is is not there at all. Uh, even if you go to a movie theater and sit by yourself in a specific spot. And don't talk to anybody. There is something about that experience of out of the corner of your mind, knowing that there are other people in the movie theater watching it with you. It's part of part. It's really part of what cinema is, I think. And and by the way, for those of you listening, uh, Mike and I, uh, Michael and I are 4,000, maybe four and a quarter million uh, feet from from one another so that's social distancing yeah. i just thought i'd look that up just to be just to because the sound because i know how to do this so it, right. it sounds good yeah well tell me about uh putting together your your screenings which you had a test run then you had the official first one and i guess they're gonna go as long as this whole business lasts it seems yeah well um the silent comedy watch party is something i had wanted i'd had the idea for a few years of trying to do uh silent film presentation that streams where i would accompany it live but always the idea was well you don't want stuff to just you know splatter out to the internet and uh you want to control it and and you don't you don't want people to stay home from the theaters you know you want to promote you know people to go to the shows that's my main thing uh making shows happen and preserving the audience so making it available as a streaming thing as cool as it might be uh was until a few weeks ago the idea was that oh well then i want people to go to the theaters i would i want you to drive an hour to a, a an art house and see a movie there and don't sit in your living room with your 75 inch television and, and watch me play for something. I really initially, as soon as it was over, the, the, the official episode, the first one we just did, I locked it up because the idea is I wanted it to be streaming only, only streamed so that you have to make an appointment and you all sit down and the ideas were all communally watching the stream at the same time. And if you miss it, you miss it. And that seemed okay on the 15th where uh, on that day, I still had a show or two so I still, you know, I wanted to promote going to an art house and uh, I, my wife and a couple other friends of mine just reminded me, you know, it's there's nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and uh, 
locking it down was not the way um, in this. In this It's an, another aspect of, of being a gatekeeper versus access. And because of the three shorts we showed on the 22nd, uh, they're all public domain, but two of them were from my own uh, DVD releases. And the other one was something that we had sourced uh, from a USCU Hefner moving image archive. So I quickly was able to get an okay from Dino Everett. And I went back to YouTube and, and made the, the stream available. Uh, after all the people in Australia and Japan who I had been in touch with after the last one, uh, really wanted to see it. Uh, so now they can see it. And, and again, it, it really, it meant so much. The, the, you know, I've spent the last, two nights the night of the show and last night answering uh messages um comments on twitter comments on facebook and emails that have come in and not just emails uh, in support and with nice comments but every single person who signed up on patreon or sent in a contribution which was not the intent but after the first anyway after we did the pilot I got messages from people. Is there a way we can send in something? So I said, if you want to. Uh, so so stuff came in, and and I, it was just moving uh, to see the the reaction in general, and just to find out where everybody's watching from. There are people in Ireland and Denmark and um, Japan and Australia and all over the U.S. and Canada, uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, and England. And these are these are just the people who contacted me. You know, the the most common comment I got uh, from both of the the, the streamings was uh, how this brought uh, you know uh, some li lightness uh, and uh, diversion uh, f from what's been going on. You know, and it's that that for an hour hour and a half, uh, people laughed. But we had around. You know, I was looking at the numbers, and it was, you know, during the show, I think it was like around 380 or something, which is nice. I mean, that'd be a really full house most places. But afterwards, it's up to like 1,500 now or something. Right. So, so, and I'm still trying to understand YouTube's analytics, but <laughs> there are, at least, at least as of yesterday, there, yes, the average viewing was around 360, 380. Um, I do know that the total number of unique viewers was 800. Okay. This is one. This is one of these things where the numbers are great to know about, but it's you know, I've I've got messages from people who were who said I've never seen silent film before. This was great. Uh, uh, I know of a few people who said I sat down with my kid, and we watched him, and he you know he was laughing from start to finish, and. And, you know, which is you forget when you're you're in a different kind of a mindset, you're worried about how is the print? Is the speed right? Is this a dupe? Does it look OK? There's a shot missing here. And, you know, what this has done, it's it's uh, enabled a lot of people who don't get to go to a silent film or had had never even heard of it or never given it a shot. But a friend of theirs, you know, forwarded a retweet or something. They saw the link someplace. And they sat down because what else are you doing? That connection, that interpersonal connection that we're we're lacking right now. I mean, here in New York City, you know, uh, you walk around, it's like a almost a ghost town. 
Uh, I think it's that action, that interaction of knowing I'm watching this here in my living room, uh, but there are, you know, you, you can look down, oh, there's 380 other people or however many it winds up being every week along with me. I mean, that's what I, why I wanted to uh, make sure to have the shot of me at the piano and then pan right. up the projected <laughs> image just to connect that. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been debating back and forth about trying to use, uh, there's a few different softwares where your laptop, your iPad uh, can work like a television control room and you can get, feed the video straight in. And there's something about the informality that people really dig. Um, and I've seen a few comments about, oh, Cinefest, you know, this is like, you know, has <laughs> reminded them of that, that, that feeling is a couple of people gathering in a, in a room somewhere. It's, you know, it's like, uh, having people over to your house to watch films and then that's how, uh, I mean, is that how you, was yeah. it when you were growing up, was there somebody with a projector whose, whose place you went to? Oh yeah. I'd get eight millimeter films from the library and there were various, uh, film series. There was, believe it or not, in Wichita, there was a communist coffee house, which is where I first saw. <laughs> oh, that's the best kind, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, where I saw the Chaplin films and met people who, you know, have been friends ever since, you know, yeah. 500 years ago. I'll tell you about the funniest ex example of seeing something when I was, a kid. Yeah. So there's this movie, a vampire movie called Nosferatu that was going to play at, in the like media resource center of the university. Yeah. So I go over there. One, there is an audience of one, me. Okay. You. Two. Yeah. Two. They've sourced this print from like the Goethe Institute. So that's fine. Uh -huh. Except for some reason it has this jazz score on it, like fifties bebop. Oh. Honest to God, Max Shrek is moving along, and it's like, and it's like it's like the least appropriate yeah. music you could wow. think of. Nevertheless, I, you know, I treasure it. My my private screening of Nosferatu with the original bebop score. You know, with the original so. bebop score. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what Morneau wanted, apparently. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about last week's show. What did what films did you show? Well, we open with a Shot in the Excitement, which is a Keystone comedy from 1914, co-starring Al St. John and Alice Howell. And this is the version that we showed was from the Alice Howell uh, DVD collection that I put out. The film was directed by, we think, and by we, I mean Steve, and maybe also Brent Walker, and some other people, uh, that Rube Miller, who plays the bad guy standing in for Ford Sterling, also directed it. Um, it's a crazy short. It's a lot of fun. Uh, of the three that we showed, it was my daughter's favorite. Um, and it's a short that I showed to my students as an example of how Keystone took the basic formula of visual storytelling and how far they could now take it, uh, just in terms of the, the craziness, the slapstick, um, the the throwing logic to the wind, and the whole chase at the end with the bomb, the bombs chasing people. Is just hysterical. And so that's on the Alice Howell collection. If you miss the show and want to see, <laughs> you know, 11 more Alice Howell shorts, and why wouldn't you? Our second short was called Meet Father. Um, and it's from uh, a 9.5 millimeter print. It stars Bobby Ray and has Glenn Cavender in it. 
uh, and uh, we had a two for one animal uh, thing in this short in that uh, jo- both Josephine the monkey and Pete the pup are, are in the short. Uh, I think the moment, the segment with Pete uh, almost steals the whole film and it almost feels like somebody else directed it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just, it's just wonderful and full of charm and personality. Um, this is something that was from the accidentally preserved volume four DVD, which was all films that only survive on 9.5 millimeter from uh, prints in the USC Hefner collection, uh, working together with Dino Everett. And uh, that is a short I have shown uh, the last couple of years uh, where I have gone into the NYU Cinema Studies class uh, for silent film. And along with a couple of other better known things, I show that as an example of 9.5 millimeter film. And the film absolutely kills. So uh, I, I figured it's obscure, but I know I know that kind of if that if film students find this funny, Maybe everybody else will, and <laughs> and 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 it's a it is a fun short. And then our, we closed out with uh, an eye for figures, which I had run the week before. Uh, it's something I won on eBay a few years ago, uh, mislabeled as something called Ragtime Romeo, and uh, it's it's from the series of comedies. I'm just basically repeating everything Steve said in his introduction. Uh, but basically, uh, there was a series of comedies that that Hank Mann made for Arrow, and they were made uh, pretty much back to back. You know, he'd sh- he'd go from one sh- shoot of uh, in one c- scene uh, to another one from another comedy, and then back and forth, so that uh, a huge amount of these were cranked out in rapid succession. Some of them were directed by Charlie Parrott. Uh, you can usually tell because he turns up in a cameo, and and sure. at least. One or two parts. There's one called Way Out West that the Library of Congress has preserved, and he's in a couple of places uh, in the, in that film as well. Um, so I had it's it's a slightly you know warpy 16 millimeter print, but as far as we can tell, it's the only one on the planet. Uh, I've had it scanned by the Library of Congress's silent film project, so I have a nice uh, file of it, and uh, people loved it the first week uh the first week i showed a snub pollard comedy from one of the founded mostly lost dvds and an eye for figures uh, because the and I, the reason i re-ran it is that a i got so many positive comments people were just floored by it was one of these things like whenever we all rediscovered marcel perez like how have i never seen this guy <laughs> and, it, and it's short and people just loved it and and also because it's not available on DVD, I want to run it again. That was the program, and you know I did some introductions, and Steve gave you know uh, film notes with a on FaceTime with we held the phone right in front of the my phone that was shooting the show, and I played for the films live on piano on my on my little uh, uh, Baldwin small grand piano here. You know we try to have that informal uh, kind of field at least in terms of the delivery, and that's something. I I learned is important from watching Ernie Kovacs for years. I mean, <laughs> yeah. a lot of his shows feel feel like uh, their visits with him, and the, we actually have some audio transcription discs of the shows that Ernie did in the early fifties uh, for CBS. And the beginnings of some of them sound like you know he's just hanging out with some people, and they turn the cameras on, right. and there he is, like oh you know, here you are. Well, and there's no 
big ta-da at the beginning. It just, it just sort of, it's like you walked into a room and it's very informal. So I'm trying to keep this, um, you know, along with Steve, keep it in, in informal. Like you've come over to my house or where we brought over a projector. Um, but I think that there, there is really, what's really interesting is that in the, in this, this headspace we're all in, uh, the need for entertain an entertainment like silent film where you it's it's cinema but at the same time you're also involved in a way though I always think of the Kevin Brownlow quote that with silent film the audience is the final participant in the filmmaking process and and yeah. there's something about that uh, that connection that draws you in and up and out of your seat. Uh, which I think people really need that kind of escape right now, I'm guessing. Um, but the idea is that we'll do this every week as of as as of now. Uh, where else am I going to go? Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, Sunday, you know, weekend after, I mean, who knows who has a weekend anymore? But um, if you are working from home, uh, and you're you're and you're sticking to a Monday to Friday thing. Then uh, Sunday matinee is a good time, and it, the time zone seems to fit for everybody except for the other side of the planet. Right. <laughs> so yeah. Can you give us a little preview of of the next one? I I wish I could. I the piano will be in slightly better tune, uh, <laughs> and I'll I'll play. I'll got. I hope I can play better music. Um, I don't know what we're going to show. It'll be three films. Uh, and I'm going, Steve and I are going through uh, just what I have from Undercrank. And again, I, I don't want to, even though these things are splattered all over YouTube already, I don't want to just take a DVD of a film, even if it's a public domain film, and then just throw it up there. Uh, I, I'm trying to reach out to some of the distributors just to get a, uh, an okay or even if it's a no at least i found out but i want to do the honorable thing i don't know what we're going to show at this moment uh, what what's been great is that no one has cared so far uh, it wasn't like oh you're showing that i'll give that a miss um, people people tuned in who had no idea who any of these people are uh, and, and what's been fun actually is that a lot of people discovered hank mann and what a great comedian he is. Silent Comedy Watch Party will continue for the foreseeable future on YouTube. Search for it there or watch for the link at Nitrateville, at Ben's site silentfilmmusic.com, or by following Ben on Twitter, at Silent Film Music. To order his DVDs, visit undercrankproductions.com. Verdammte Reise. Minnesota? <lacht> Warum lachen Sie denn? Minnesota. Da ist mir nur was eingefallen. Aha.
That's Greta Garbo, speaking in German in the German-language version of Anna Christie, with Salka Wirtel in the role made famous in English by Marie Dressler. And who was Salka Wirtel? A good question indeed. She was a European stage actress and writer, married to a director, Bertold Viertel, and you might say that between them, their credits reward those who love digging for obscurities. Another way you might say it is Oscar Wilde's. Salka Viertel put her talent into her works, but her genius into her life. That, in essence, is the story biographer Donna Rifkin seeks to tell in The Sun and Her Stars, Salka Viertel and Hitler's Exiles in the Golden Age of Hollywood, published in January by Other Press. She portrays Viertel as the organizing center and mother hen of a European artist's exile community in Hollywood, which would play a major role in 20th century literature and filmmaking. I spoke with Donna Rifkin at her home in California. Well, it's interesting. I, I think there's something kind of, it's not a perfect metaphor, but there's something similar about this book and what we're all going through, this idea of being, you know, refugees and exiles and clustering down in our in our homes. How, how has it been uh, for you since uh, the book came out? Did you get to do a book tour or anything like that? I was lucky enough to do about half of my book tour and I was in Ann Arbor two weeks ago um, when everything sort of went kaflooey, and then I flew home and everything else was canceled, but I feel really lucky that I got to do what I did, um, which was a lot of the East Coast and some of the West. So, you know, uh, since then, of course, there really is very little going on, but I, I, like you, I'm thinking a lot about curfews and wartime emergency and fear, and, you know, it brings up a lot of similar emotions. Um, and it's, it's sort of helpful to remember that there have been difficult times in this country before. Just a little bit of perspective. Right. How did you choose on this subject? I have to admit, I mean, I knew of the Viertels a little. Um, I actually like two of Berthold's films from England, uh, Little Friend and The Passing of the Third Floor Back, quite a lot. But, you know, they're not, mm -hmm. they're certainly not top-level figures in Hollywood history by conventional standards. So how'd you settle on Salka Viertel? Am I saying that right, by the way, Salka? Yes, that's correct. And and her last name, depending on who you are, if you're American, you'd say Vertel. If you were from Europe, you'd say Viertel. So okay. yeah, that's correct. All right, so I was um, half, halfway in between. Um, yeah, how'd, <laughs> how'd you settle on, on her as a subject? I grew up in Los Angeles, um, without being interested in anything about L.A. history. You know, in school, for me, it was always reading about the California missions, which just bored me to tears. <laughs> and I had no idea that this episode in Los Angeles history existed. If someone had told me when I was, you know, in high school that this was a time when incredible intellectual superstars were coming over from Europe, fleeing from Hitler and finding refuge in uh, a woman's house in Santa Monica, you know, for Sunday afternoon parties, I would have paid attention, but that I had no idea. So I, uh, after living uh, outside of Los Angeles for a long time, I came back and I started to become interested, a little more interested in LA history. And I went to the library and I came upon this memoir that I knew nothing about, but had been recommended to me. And it was Salka Viertel's memoir called The Kindness of Strangers. And I instantly fell in love with her, as most people do when they read this book. And it gave me 
very different perspective of what Los Angeles was because when I was growing up, it was perceived to be this cultural wasteland where nothing of any intellectual interest was going on. And in fact, it was this sort of, you know, renaissance moment when superstars from all over Europe had collected in, in one place by force, not by their choice. Um, and it really was the opposite of a cultural wasteland. It's interesting. But there's a couple of places in your book where there'll just be a recitation of who is at a party or something like that, and it's, um, you know, it's just so perfect. These these lists of celebrity, intellectual celebrity names. There's one uh, here. I'm just leafing to it here. Uh, we get mentions of Aldous Huxley, Anita Luce, Bertrand Russell, and the Hindu spiritual teacher Krishnamurti, you know, which is is just perfect. You know, Evelyn Waugh couldn't have done better in The Loved One for naming sort of the, you know, the, what a crossroads of, of intellectual currents and, and oddball uh, trends that uh, California was at that point. That's exactly right. Yes, yeah, this sort of confluence of personalities that all came together at this harmonic convergence. And and really, Salka Fiertel was the equal of these people. She wasn't just a hostess. She was fluent in at least six languages, and she had had a classical education. She was a very accomplished actress in Europe with uh, Max Reinhardt's theaters. Um, she wasn't just, you know, someone opening her door and offering a slice of cake. She was able to converse with them on their level. Although that's kind of what you talk about right at the beginning, I thought it was really interesting, is the way people like her dismissed as having just been hostesses. I mean, you say at one point, you know, the women, where are their stories? We, we get the stories of, of the big name men at this time, you know, whether it's the Thalbergs or the Thomas Manns or whoever, but much less so people like Salka. And uh, you also you give a good picture of like them sort of operating at a party early on. I mean, the men have their jobs and they're sort of representing their jobs at the party and the women don't know quite what to be, you know, the, the front, what their front is as they present to each other and they have to kind of work out a role for themselves. You're exactly right that it's, you know, the winners write the history books. So it's always been the stories of the men because the men were writing the books. The women were ornaments or they were, you know, helpmates throughout Hollywood. But in fact, that's not true. Women were involved in every aspect of the studio system. And in many cases, they had quite a bit of influence, but not actual power. Uh, they were editors, they were writers, they were, um, you know, scene designers. They had all kinds of jobs, especially during the war, of course, when um, many of the men were away and they were pressed into service like everybody else. Well, let's talk about, I mean, Berthold is a is kind of a secondary character, but he he's certainly important at the beginning because the two of them came, you know, worked in Berlin and other places as a team, and and came to America, kind of as a team. So who were they at that point? When they first arrived in America in 1928, yeah, they came because Berthold had been offered a contract with Fox to be the writer for the films of F. W. Murnau, so it was all about Berthold at that time. Uh, it was he, actually, who made the decision to come to Hollywood, and Salka, who really didn't know where Hollywood was, went along with it. <laughs> um, and then, of course, it wasn't long before the tables were turned, and Berthold was more or less sidelined by Hollywood, and Salka actually became the, the successful studio figure. And so what had they been in Berlin? Uh, she, she was an actress. 
she was an actress. He was a director and a poet. He was a, he was quite an intellectual. He was in the circle of Karl Kraus, who was an extremely influential critic and philosopher. Um, so not to you know denigrate any of Bertolt's accomplishments because he actually was quite accomplished. Um, but when they came to Hollywood, uh, he had a tough time fitting into the studio system as an intellectual. He did not have the skills of diplomacy and tact and um, negotiation that Falka actually was able to cultivate when she became a member, uh, when she joined MGM later. He, though, was able to um, do very well for Murnau as, as much as possible. Um, he worked on um, several films that have since been lost um, and was hoping, you know, to branch out. He was fired eventually um, uh, the, the deal with Fox went south and he ended up at Paramount um, under the uh, auspices of B.P. Schulberg, who he liked much better because he was considered him much smarter and more intellectual. And that, that went a little better for him. But he really didn't understand uh, the studio system, didn't much like Hollywood. He was he was a Viennese cafe intellectual and Los Angeles baffled him. He couldn't drive. Uh, he missed the cafe society that he had been used to. It wasn't, it was never a good fit for him. He was there because he had to be more or less. And on the other hand, Falca, who, when she became, she had no intention of becoming a screenwriter. She had been an actor. She had hoped to be an actress in Hollywood and did act in several movies, which was not a good experience for her in general. Um, she claimed that acting in fragments was like drinking from an eyedropper when parched. Um, and she, <laughs> She really felt uh, adrift because she was almost 40 by the time she came. And, and then, as now, there were very few roles for women who are older actresses. And she didn't really know how to invent, reinvent herself until a few years later when uh, she met Greta Garbo. And Garbo actually suggested that she might try her hand at screenwriting. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they both came out of that avant-garde theater world, uh, good friends with Max Reinhardt. Uh, Salka, of course, would later have an affair for many years with his son, Gottfried. Uh, but mm -hmm. they never quite had... I mean, I think to make it in Hollywood, you had to cross your your European sensibility with a certain American healthy vulgarity, you know? I mean, that's, that's what you think of somebody like Billy Wilder or Lubitsch or whoever successfully doing and um you know i felt like Bertolt just couldn't kind of get to that and salka found her place really i think this is somewhat common in hollywood stars will have their their sort of writer in their pocket who gets them and get and knows how to get their persona into you know down on a on a script yes i think that's accurate it's it's uh similar to the situation between uh, Frances Marion, screenwriter, and, and Mary Pickford, who had a very fruitful, uh, long business partnership, and in the same way understood each other, were able to do things for each other that they could not do themselves. Salka had, again, diplomacy, tact, and ability to negotiate with the studio on behalf of Garbo. Garbo had immense power and celebrity and was able to make Salka's career in Hollywood possible. Yeah, I mean, she. The, you tell a story about Salka negotiating her way into the studio with, I think it was with Thalberg, 
Um, or maybe it was Eddie Mannix, I forget. But, but uh, you know, I mean, they, they go right to loggerheads, but it, it seems to end pretty happily. And, uh, you know, like she got she got some respect for having, uh, you know, played a tough hand and all that. So seemed to do pretty well in Hollywood. I mean, I, the one thing I knew is what you talk about. There, there were kind of rumors. Well, one, the rumor that she and Garbo had an affair which you say there's really no evidence one way or the other on. And the other that she wasn't really that much of a contributor, which you disagree with pretty strongly. I do. And there's no real way, unless you're actually in the writer's room at the time, to determine who exactly wrote what in a script. And these were these scripts were highly collaborative. There were many, many writers who rewrote and rewrote. But I was able to, when I was going through scripts at the Margaret Herrick Library here in L.A., I was able to discern what I imagine might be a European sensibility a lot of time. And since Falcott was the only European on the staff, it seemed clear to me that her she had much more to do with these screenplays than anyone has ever suggested. Most people just say, well, she got these credits because, you know, as sort of a, a payback for her help with Garbo, um, you know, in the studio. But in fact, I think she had much more influence on these scripts uh, than is indicated. And she herself in her memoir describes how she um, translated her acting skills into writing by pacing around the room and acting out a scene and then having her collaborator write it down as she was acting it out. So <laughs> that seems pretty compelling to me. Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting part, too. I mean, you talk about this going back in time slightly from where we were, but uh, both Murnau and Sergei Eisenstein, um, she... You know, you use the phrase mother hen at one point, and she kind of mother hen both of them through several of their projects. And it's the sort of thing that isn't, you know, doesn't end up on paper precisely necessarily, but um, in a way it's a, it's a form of being a producer that she sort of nurtured them through these things. You know, Myrna's actually got made and Eisenstein's didn't really. Um, but, you know, that kind of taking care of outsiders and, and, you know, essentially showing them the town and helping them negotiate it was, you know, was what she would come to do a lot of. Yes, that's true. And they were out, they were really doubly outsiders. They were Europeans for one thing, but they were also artists and, uh, Hollywood didn't really know what to do with real pure artists. Um, these people were tended to be, you know, introverted and strange and, you know, not really, um, going along with the crowd and Salka was able to be an ambassador for them to explain what they were trying to accomplish to the studio heads who, you know, were really more commercially minded. So in a way she was their sort of lifeline, um, to, to translate what they were, what their genius was to the screen in Hollywood. And, and on the other hand, as you say, she sustained them, she fed them, she, um, uh, drove them from, you know, place to place. She sort of gave them a, a way to navigate through this very strange new environment of Hollywood. And that became a sort of precursor, the, both Eisenstein and Murnau, to these throngs of people who were about to flee out of uh, Europe as soon as Hitler took power in 1933 and who were going to need that help in, you know, thousands of ways, which Salka was able to understand and help them with. Well, you know, it's funny, you talk about driving, I kind of got, it's a minor theme in the book, but I kind of got a new appreciation for how alien California's car culture 
uh, must have seemed to some of these people. There's a great line from Alfred Dublin, the author of Berlin Alexanderplatz, where he says, uh, pedestrians had become extinct. People are born as drivers in California, uh, which is very close to what Woody Allen says in Annie Hall. So uh, It's it evergreen, yeah. Yeah, but it's funny that, uh, yeah, so Salka becomes, you know, driver to great filmmakers. Ed Berthold, meanwhile, uh, gives up after <laughs> one drive lesson as a show that's right and in some ways it was a measure of your potential for success in hollywood (laughs) yeah well yeah let's let's go back to garbo uh queen christina was the one that really cemented their partnership and probably the most successful overall although i think i like anna karenina a little better than you do but uh, developing that that piece, I mean, it's kind of funny. We think of you know tales of of royalty's love lives as a you know as persistent Hollywood genre, but it was kind of out of favor at that point. I suppose it was seen as too kind of silent era froofy, the sort of thing that you know May Murray or somebody would have done, and not very contemporary in 1933. Yes, and it's funny when I watched Queen Christina again recently, and I was struck by, as you say, the sort of pomp and circumstance of it. And and I was also wondering whether the Marx Brothers might not have been satirizing that sort of, you know, court um, majesty in some of their movies, because it is, well, from our point of view, a little bit stagey and very much like, you know, the silence. But you have to remember this was made in 1932, 1933, or we're five years out from the silence at most. So, uh, and two of the of the greatest scenes in Queen Christina are actually wordless or completely silent. So, uh, it was a bit of a transitional film in many ways, I think. Um, but on the other hand, there was Garbo, who had been a fantastically successful silent star and one of the only superstars to be just as successful as uh, once the talkies came in, and she was she had a voice that everyone had dreamed that she might have, and and. So audiences were thrilled, and it really just sort of um, increased her celebrity, if anything. So how did the process of developing the material for her work? Well, Salka had had been reading a biography of Queen Christina, um, and that was when Garbo suggested, well, maybe you want to try your hand at screenwriting. And so Salka did what she had, um, what she did for the rest of her career, which was to sort of act out certain scenes from the life of Queen Christina and then try to get them on paper in German. They were then translated by a friend of hers, and the two decided to be to market themselves as co-writers. Um, of course, the friend was quickly sidelined, and Salka, after these negotiations with Salberg, ended up being designated the writer for Queen Christina. There were many others who were hoping to do it, but uh, other friends of Garbo, but it was Salka who prevailed. And uh, many, many, many drafts ensued. Um, most of the people who worked on the movie were from Europe. The director, Ruben Mamoulian, um, Garbo herself, uh, many of the actors. Um, so it was, it, they, it, it, the, I guess, goal was to kind of find a balance between the historical accuracy of the story, which Falka insisted on, and Garbo too, and this sort of Hollywood presentation of what it meant to be a queen, you know, what what a queen's love life might be like, how a queen might be just a person that audiences could relate to. And there were tons and tons of 
uh, movies about royalty that were in the hopper at the time, uh, the Depression era audiences couldn't get enough of them because they were sort of starving for you know glamour and um, prestige and all the things that they no longer had or or maybe never had. So um, Queen Christina was really one of the first of the many many pictures in Hollywood at the time about royalty. And Queen Christina herself, because this was pre-code, was um, this very sort of controversial figure. She was she was raised to act like a man. She had many manly qualities. She had affairs with men and women. She was incredibly progressive. She believed in education, and she was had very strong pacifist tendencies, having to deal with the Thirty Years' War that she had inherited from her father. Um, so the, I think that the writers, including Sokka, were eager to get many of these um, progressive ideas across, you know, in a time when Hollywood was not so intent on policing itself as far as morality. How wonderful to be happy for no reason. <laughs> Let's go for a sleigh ride. I can't now. Oh, why not? Ambassadors, treaties, councils. How boring. <laughs> well, we'll go afterward, Eva. Oh, you always say that. But at the end of the day, you're never free to go anywhere. You're surrounded by musty old papers and musty old men, and I can't get near you. Now, you mentioned the two kind of wordless scenes. Uh, it doesn't sound like there's necessarily a lot for a screenwriter to do in there, but I think that's maybe where we see Salka's understanding of what Garbo's character could be on screen and what worked for her. So maybe tell me about those those two scenes a bit. So the first is uh, a scene that's known sort of as the memorizing this room scene. And it's when Queen Christina has been uh, posing as a man and going sort of rogue and, and goes to a country inn, and she meets and falls in love with a Spanish ambassador uh, who's played by John Gilbert, who Garbo had once been engaged to and was very close to and was um, happy to have as her co-star after she rejected a young actor who the studio had hoped to promote in the role uh, named Lawrence Olivier. So, uh, so Garbo, uh, so Queen Christina and the Spaniard are holed up in this country inn, it's snowed in, and they have this romantic night together. And the next day, uh, Garbo is walking around the room and touching all kinds of objects in the room as if to cement them in her memory because she, it's a moment of great happiness for her. And she's hoping that later in her life, things are not so happy, she'll be able to sort of memorize the room. So it's, it's sort of a, a, a work of choreography. She and Ruben Mamoulian, the director, work together with a metronome, and she almost dances around the room and touches a spinning wheel and an icon and the bedpost, and it's, it's actually more erotic than any other of the love scenes in the movie. Um, and uh, at the end, you know, the Spaniard John Gilbert asks her, what are you doing? She says, uh, I, I'm memorizing this room in the future. I hope to live in the memory of this room. Um, so that's the first wordless uh, uh, scene that's uh, famous in the movie. And the la- and the, the second one is the very last shot of Garbo, which is uh, she has abdicated her throne. She has left her country. She is on a ship after uh, her lover has died. She has abandoned her entire, everything in her life, um, and is gazing out on the prow of the ship toward a very uncertain future. 
And it's just this shot of her incredibly gorgeous face um, staring out into the ocean. And she asked the director, what should I be thinking when you know we're filming this scene? And he said, you should be thinking nothing. Your face should be blank like a mask. And so when you see the scene, you're able, the audience is able to project any of their own emotions onto Garbo in the same way that um, people in Sweden projected Garbo as they, they made her the, um, the, the symbol of their country. They were happy to superimpose this image of Garbo on their, you know, great queen, 17th century queen. And, and she became this sort of um, uh, emblem of, of glamour and celebrity and, and mystery and uh, power. Um, and so that's, that's that last great scene. So they work together on um, that Anna Karenina conquest, which was one of those runaway productions kind of, uh, I think maybe the, the most expensive movie, that MGM did in that time, uh, maybe the most expensive movie till gone with the wind or something like that. There's a, a line, I think it was Bertolt said in a, in a letter, um, he was talking about, uh, the costuming of Garbo and he made a reference to the abuse of Greta as a mannequin for Adrian, the, the clothing designer. Yes. He was actually, he was talking about the movie, the painted veil. Oh, okay. Somerset mom story. And, and, and when you see that movie, it's true. She has some, pretty wild outfits that Adrian had constructed for her. And after his beautiful work in Queen Christina, I think it was a little bit shocking for people to see him go a little bit askew. And Garbo later confessed that she never really liked Adrian's costumes at all, ever. Um, did he do those later films as well, or did someone else at that point? I believe he did. I think yeah. he did. He definitely did Anna Karenina. Okay. Um, I don't know about Two-Faced Woman. That's the only... It's possible that he didn't. At that point, he might have been gone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so they had a uh, long working career together, but Garbo herself was sort of disengaging from the idea of stardom, and Salko was kind of left behind uh, after Nanachka and Two-Faced Woman. I mean, that was, Garbo was her bread and butter, and Garbo didn't want to work anymore, um, put her in kind of a hard spot. In the meantime, this is kind of when her career, or not a really career, but whatever you call it, uh, you know, sort of making her home into a salon for exiles in Hollywood and also other people who just kind of like to hang around that crowd. I mean, you mentioned Chaplin and Harpo Marx and people like that uh, turning mm -hmm. up at these at these parties as well. But yeah, tell us about uh, this, you know, the salon life of Salka Viertel. Well, she never called it a salon. She called it a party or a tea party <laughs> or a Sunday afternoon. Uh, other people called it a salon, and there are good reasons to think that it does fit into the sort of salon tradition that had been, uh, you know, all over Europe for, for centuries. Um, she, she opened her house on Sunday afternoons from the very earliest time that they had gotten to Hollywood. Uh, her mother had done the same back in this little garrison town in Galicia called Sambor that Salka came from. Her mother uh, had hoped to be an opera singer, had had her hopes dashed and settled for life in this sort of provincial town. But she did what she could to sort of keep the salon tradition alive. She invited people from the local university and the soldiers from the garrison, and she had her family you know, sing and play at the piano and 
act out little scenes. So Salka was really just following along in the tradition that was familiar to her. But also she was a natural hostess and she was a great connector of people. She loved to do that. So from the very beginning, Sunday afternoon, which was really the only time in Hollywood that people weren't working, they worked all day on Saturday, she invited people over to her house and uh, it became, you know, word of mouth spread and, and people, you know, came and, and invited their friends. And, and then after a while, her social circles expanded exponentially so that she knew pretty much everyone in Hollywood. So that when people started to come over from Europe, you know, trying, you know, footsteps ahead of Hitler, she was able to introduce people to each other to get collaborations going, to make introductions, to get people jobs. Um, it became not only a social um, you know, sort of a relaxing situation for the Hollywood people, but for the Europeans, it was really a lifeline. Yeah, there are two examples in particular of the kind of connections that were made there that you give that I think are really interesting. One is James Whale, I guess, was already familiar with the work of Franz Voxman, who had not worked on any films yet. And he was very excited to meet him and recruited him for The Bride of Frankenstein, which is, you know, maybe the iconic horror score or one of them. Um, yeah. and, the, and the other one is uh, Charles Lawton would come there um, and met Bertolt Brecht there and they collaborated on stage on Galileo um, quite prominently in the time. So, And in fact, Lawton and Brecht did not speak a common language. Well, actually, they did speak French together. That was the only way they could communicate because Lawton did not speak German, Brecht did not speak English. So they, but they had an incredibly fruitful partnership that began in Salka's living room and then continued in Lawton's beautiful garden above the hills in Pacific Palisades overlooking the ocean as the, the wartime ships were patrolling the waters down. They could see them from his garden. And uh, Lawton himself was a really interesting person. He was a connector in some ways himself who, during the war, um, had much had a lot of compassion for these Europeans who were stuck uh, inside during curfew, they, uh, if you were what was called an enemy alien, if you came from Germany, you were, you were suspected of being a potential Nazi, even though these people had run away from the Nazis. And so you were stuck inside your house from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m., I believe, the next morning. And if you were at somebody else's house, you had to stay there. So Lawton understood the loneliness and the isolation that these people were feeling, and he would go and, you know, read Shakespeare to Henry Coster uh, or play chess with Jean Renoir. And he also visited all the um, returning GIs who were um, undergoing rehab at this Birmingham General Hospital in Van Nuys, which actually became a high school, which is where I went to high school. <laughs> so I found Lawton to be himself really a compelling figure during this time. And he and Salka were very good friends and, and I think like-minded in their um, attempts to make things a little better for people who were having really um, a tough time. Well, you know, that you mentioning uh, like the the wounded veterans and things like that. Uh, you also mentioned that uh, Marlena Dietrich was a guest, and that was kind of dicey with Garbo. Garbo tended not to come to the parties, um, not surprisingly, but still, you know, Dietrich being her rival, that was that was a little. Um, dicey, but she did admire how Ruben Mamoulian had directed her in Song of Songs, and that was what led to him working on Queen Christina. That's right. That's right. And and it really was more of a studio-manufactured rivalry between Dietrich and Garbo. I'm not sure how much they actually you know disliked each other, 
Um, but I think for their purposes, they kept their distance. Marlena Dietrich did come to Salka's afternoons and they, you know, I think she and uh, Salka respected each other for their anti-fascist activities and, you know, were extremely politically like-minded. So um, I can't say that. I think that Salka was mostly being loyal to Garba by sort of downplaying their relationship, but they were in fact quite friendly. Well, you know, one thing that struck me about this, uh, when you compare it to the other kinds of Hollywood socializing that existed, there were the, you know, there were the poker games that could be very ruinous to a screenwriter having to play, you know, opposite Jack Warner or somebody. Uh, there were there were the very fancy events at uh, the grandiose homes of the moguls, and I have to think you know, kind of the modesty of the Virtus home, uh, the hominess of it. That that part of what made it so appealing was that it kind of turned off all the Hollywood pomp and pressure, and and was just sort of more friendly and open. That's exactly right. That's where people could come and really feel that they could relax. And it, it was a, a facsimile of uh, a home in Berlin or in Vienna, and it instantly made people from Europe feel comfortable with the same books on the shelves. The cooking smells were the same as in their mother's kitchens. It made them feel immediately that they were in a, a, a friendly place, a place where they could, they weren't just immigrants, they, were, they could be themselves, they, they were understood there. That was very important to them. For the Hollywood people, you know, homes were where they congregated, whether it were the fancy ones or the more modest ones. They really only went to these nightclubs as sort of, um, you know, a way to publicize their activities. Uh, it was marketing more than anything. But but Los Angeles is a, is a place of houses, and that's where people tended to congregate. So, um, the spiritual house, yes, was, you know, there were three little kids running around. There were tons of dogs. Uh, it was, and also being, you know, within view of the ocean, there was, there were many things about it that made people immediately feel comfortable. Yeah. I thought that one of the most just beguiling parts of your book is how they react to the, the Pacific ocean when they first see it. Well, uh, it was very discordant for them because they would hear this, these horrible news bulletins coming from Europe about devastation. And then they'd be gazing out at this, you know, beautiful blue ocean and all these blithe, you know, beachgoers. And it just didn't make, it was bewildering to them. It didn't make any sense. Salga, on the other hand, as soon as she saw the ocean, fell in love with it. She had grown up near a big river and water was very soothing to her. And she always loved being near the ocean. She missed it very much when she left. Well, let's talk about the other thing that, that, a lot of them mentioned as, as being very popular, which was Salka's chocolate cake. Uh, <laughs> does a, Do we know what it was? Does a recipe exist for the chocolate cake or at least a fairly good idea? There is a recipe. I have made the recipe. <laughs> nice. uh, but uh, as a friend of, uh, well, Salka was very good friends with, with the uh, novelist Erwin Shaw, and Erwin's son Adam has said to me that you really had to be her in order to make this cake. I mean, I could make the recipe, but it wouldn't be the same, that she put some essence of herself into this cake. It had a sort of core of bitterness in, in with the sweet, and it, was, it had layers of nuance. It was very much her cake, and people were obsessed with it. Thomas Mann once went to uh, the wedding reception of people he didn't even know because he heard that Salsa was bringing the cake. <laughs> It was really, uh, I don't know, a sort of symbol of everything that she represented, you know, and it was, 
the cake she made for birthdays and for the Sunday afternoons and was what people really look forward to. She was an amazing cook. It wasn't just the chocolate cake. She made all kinds of comforting European recipes, stuffed cabbage and, um, you know, elaborate salads. And there was always tons of food. And that, I think, sort of, you know, lent more credence to the idea of her as a den mother or as a sort of mother hen to all of these well, let's talk about uh, her and Berthold's relationship um, over these years. They had kind of open relationships. They were always having affairs. Uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, they'd, they'd be having their affair, but Berthold still expected that she kind of mother him. And if his affair wasn't going well, that she console him a little bit or things like that. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's the kind of thing you just read that and you're like, where do you people find time for all this? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, that seemed to be just kind of how how they went on. And it's particularly interesting because, I mean, you look at photos of her and she's kind of matronly and imposing. But she ha- apparently had that presence, like a, like a stage actress, sort of grand grand in the old school way seemed to work for her. I mean, Gottfried Reinhardt was half her age when they had an affair. He was 22 years younger. I think that from everything that I've read and from what people have told me, she was an incredibly sexy woman. It was her personality that sort of dominated. Um, and she was not just sort of a grand dame. She also was an incredibly good listener. She would pay attention to you and be very present to you when you were talking to her. She wasn't just, just sort of accuracy and dramatic. She was also a real friend and a real person, you know, one-on-one or a, a large crowd. It didn't matter. And she could, uh, she could dominate the room, but she could also sort of stand back and let you talk. So I think people were very compelled by that. You know, the actor Montgomery Clift was in love with her. There were, there were rumors of, of uh, people seeing uh, Salka and him making out in a convertible outside her, outside, I think it was Gene uh, uh, Kelly's house after a party. So she was always interested in young men. They were always interested in her. There um, there were, you know, rumors, of course, of affairs with women, although nothing substantiated. Uh, she was just sort of a, a dynamic person. And I think that in, in a way that these photos can't capture, um, she and Berthold early on had figured out that this was not going to be a monogamous relationship. If you've seen any Lubitsch movie, this is the kind of marriage that you would see uh, represented there. It was very European. It was very open. But at the same time, they had this ironclad um, uh, dedication to each other. They they were on the same team, as you say. They, um, you know, their partnership about the, the, as parents to their three children was a very serious as artists, as collaborators, they had had a theater company together. They understood each other's work. They supported each other's work. So, and it wasn't the kind of marriage that we might consider conventional, but it was in many ways an incredibly successful marriage. Now she was also involved. I found it a little hard to, to quite understand the degree to which she was involved, which I guess is just that she was again, sort of the mother hand to something. Uh, but the European film fund, She's around the creation of that, and that was that was helping these refugees come to the U.S., uh, particularly at later points when they really had to escape, not just emigrate, but, uh, you know, find some way over hills and past borders to get toward America. 
Yes, that's right. And and many of them literally walked over the Pyrenees to escape from southern France, to try to get to uh, Spain and then Lisbon and then get a boat out. Um, she was not one of the founders of the European Film Fund, but she was she did uh, offer her home as, as it's one of its sort of home bases. Uh, and and the idea of the fund was that everyone in the studio who wanted to participate would give 1% of their weekly salary into this fund, which was then used to write checks and get affidavits and do all of the sort of mountains of paperwork that were necessary for these immigrants to get out of Europe. Um, and uh, in many cases, these were very, very well-known people. This, these were superstars. This was Franz Werfel and Heinrich Mann, who was Thomas Mann's brother, who, if anything, was more successful as a novelist in Germany than his brother. It was people who had connections and were able to uh, work those connections. And it was thought that if we could get, if they could get um, these very well-known people out, it would be good, sort of good publicity. Um, for the fund, and they would then be able to work on people who were less famous. Well, let's talk about, I mean, that that kind of relocation of European high culture in California, uh, which almost sounds like the setup to a joke in some ways. But the... Uh, you know, it's it's one thing that you know you they brought over people who went straight into the film industry successfully. Many of them didn't. Many of them didn't want to. I mean, Thomas Mann was not looking to write movies for Deanna Durbin or anything. This sort of you know export of a whole culture to another place. Um, I mean, I guess it was it was a big deal. How did what was it? What was the reaction to it in America? I guess is kind of what I'm wondering. This this strange thing suddenly popping up here. Well, once you were in Hollywood, it was very hard to uh, avoid Hollywood. So even Thomas Mann, who didn't need any extra income, was an internationally best-selling writer who had won the Nobel Prize, palled around with FDR in the White House. He, he couldn't help being involved with Hollywood, especially at Salka's house where he was meeting all these people and he was there every week. He actually suggested to Walt Disney that Disney make a movie about uh, the character Bambi, which was the uh, creation of an Austrian writer named Felix Salton. And so even he had his tenuous connections to, to Hollywood. Um, Heinrich Mann, his brother, had no interest in Hollywood whatsoever, but in order to get out of uh, Europe, he um, had to prove that he was not going to be a public charge in America, that he had an income. And so he was able to get a one-year studio contract at Warner Brothers, and he would go to the studio and sort of, I don't know what he did there. He, he, he didn't really understand what was going on or had an interest <laughs> in it, but he did, have this, he did have a contract, and he was there for a year. And so many of the people who came via the European Film Fund, that was that was the case. I believe Alfred Dublin also um, had a studio contract. The reaction in Hollywood was utter bafflement. I think uh, they did not know what to do with these people. They felt bad for them. Uh, they hoped that they would be able to get a toehold in the culture here. But generally, I think it was um, a very mysterious to have these people in their studios. They really... You know, it wasn't that they were unsympathetic, but they really didn't know how they could fit into that sort of machinery there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a, you talk about, I think it was Heinrich Mann's 70th birthday party, but Thomas Mann gave a speech at it. And, 
he you know at one point he, he's he's talking about how hitler is you know basically crapped on the intellectual heritage of germany and that they represent the true heritage and and he says you know hitler stole this stuff from nietzsche nietzsche would be with us that's and, right. You know, That's and right. Just, he would be with us in exile. That's yeah, right. and it's just funny to think of you know Nietzsche taking a meeting in Hollywood in particular. Um, yeah, yeah it's so. quite a dis- And and these were they they considered themselves the the ancestors and the, the proper literary um, you know descendants of Nietzsche, and so they were carrying his flag onto foreign soil and planting it there as far as they could see. And there they all were, you know, at Leon Feuchtwanger's house in the Pacific Palisades, you know, at three in the morning, uh, undergoing curfew, throwing darts at a board painted with Hitler's image on it and waiting <laughs> for the news bulletins from Europe. I mean, it really was really sort of a crazy situation. Now, it's kind of poignant as the story goes on. I mean, obviously... After the war, you start to have the blacklist. There's a lot of there was always suspicion of some of these people, uh, and Salka is one of the ones who who gets some of that. I don't think she was ever really blacklisted, but she was had enough of a cloud on her name that it made it hard for her to get work. Um, but also, I think that that European culture. I mean, America was developing its own literary culture after World War II that didn't have much to do with it. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed, really, to point to how Norman Mailer, you know, later Hemingway, or people like that have that much to do with, you know, the world of Thomas Mann and Carl Krauss and so on. And there's even a little bit of that in, in Salka's own family, which is the John Huston, who's certainly a Hemingway-esque figure, um... You know, Peter, her son, winds up working for him and, of course, wrote White Hunter, Black Heart, which is about uh, about Houston. So even as they're all tremendously prominent and proud of the heritage that they represent, they kind of go out of fashion, it seems to me, in the in the 40s and 40s and 50s as they go on. Well, for some of them, it did work out for the ones who already had success. It did work out. For the others, it did not. They they couldn't make the transition, and they as soon as they could, they went. Many of them went back to Europe. They were, however, all scarred by their experience, and so whether they stayed or not, they um, it was really as if their lives had been amputated at a crucial point, and it was tough for them no matter where they were. And certainly in Hollywood, um, the allure of these European actresses of the '30s, you know, Dietrich and Garbo, had sort of given way to these fresh-faced American Lana Turners and, and newer stars. And uh, even Ingrid Bergman, I mean, was European, but somehow was perceived, I don't know, as not quite as mysterious and, and alluringly European as, as uh, the previous. So, yes, there was a turn toward, uh, after the war, toward um, America, uh, American actresses, American film, you know, the themes in the film certainly war themes, but, and, and a turn away from Europe in general. Um, Salka's last big studio movie, which was for Warner Brothers called Deep Valley with Ida Lupino was, uh, unlike all the rest of her movies set in California and about Californians, it was no longer about Europe. It was this sort of hybrid sensibility that a European woman brought to this very American theme of 
um, highways being built after the war and um, intruding on, you know, rural corners of, of, you know, California that had to sort of be brought into the 20th century suddenly. Hindus believe in one God, but they worship different symbols which they regard as the embodiments of virtues and qualities of the Supreme Being. Among these symbols is Kali, goddess of eternal destruction and creation, creation being impossible without destruction. In our village on that night, there were many Kali Pujas. The great terrifying Kali held court in all her magnificence, and the villagers gathered to ask protection from disease and famine and fire. So her last credit, um, well, except she's not credited for it, uh, is on Jean Renoir's The River. She wrote the narration for it, but they kept her name off because I think she was just sketchy enough under the you know, Red Scare and all that, that they, the producers felt it was better not to for them. And from that point on, I mean, her life, her life was kind of hard. Um, and she wound up going back to Europe at one point. She did. She, she was what was called gray listed. She had enough left leaning friends to have gathered a pretty, um, strong FBI file against her and Bertolt. And, also, she was an older woman in Hollywood, and that historically has not been a good thing. So I think that it was a good excuse for them to sideline her. Garbo was no longer making films, and her um, her use for the studio had been diminished. So she, she tried to transition into television. She actually wrote a few uh, television scripts, and she never stopped trying to write movies. She wrote several when she went back to Europe. Berthold was trying to get her to go back to Vienna where he had gone and she absolutely refused. She would not go to Germany. She would not go to Vienna. She ended up in Switzerland where Peter had moved um, with his second wife, Deborah Carr, and a a daughter named Christine, who Salka was extremely close to. So Salka went to the town of Klosters where they lived in Switzerland and that's where she um, lived for the last 25 years of her life. She died there actually in 1978. Yeah, so she published a memoir. How'd that come about? Because you might think by that point that she was sufficiently forgotten that there wouldn't be much market for that. Well, she was completely forgotten if she had ever been known by anyone except for her Hollywood circle. She you know, had a lot of time on her hands in Switzerland, and the uh, film work was almost all dried up. So she decided that she would um, devote herself to writing her life story. And she had some support from some of her friends. The, the screenwriter, Sam Berman, was one of her champions. And uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin was also writing his memoirs and was living not far from there in, um, in Beve in, in Switzerland. And so they sort of traded manuscript pages back and forth and supported each other. Um, there was no market for this at all. Nobody was the least bit interested in her life. <laughs> But an enterprising young American editor named Tom Wallace had a stable of authors that were known in the office as Wallace's Follies. That was writers who uh, who were not going to be, you know, not going to make a lot of money and not going to sell a lot of books, but who he thought had some cultural interest. So he, um, after many, many rejections, he got a look at the manuscript and he said, well, there's something here and I think we can work together. And he, he actually went to Switzerland several times and they... They wrote um, back and forth, and she developed 
the book to a degree that he thought was acceptable. And when the book was published, it really got very little attention. It got a few nice notices. Um, and she actually went back to the United States and went on a little book tour. But but they there were, I think, maybe four to 6,000 copies of the book printed, and then it immediately went out of print. But in the years that followed, um, it had been out of print, but people were discovering it as a sort of um, document of a kind of Hollywood that most people didn't really understand, that, that Hollywood was not this sort of purely American phenomenon, that it was greatly enhanced by Europeans from the beginning of its time all the way through. And so it became this, a little bit of a cult book, if you could get your hands on it. And uh, it, was, it was out of print until last year when New York Review Classics um, reissued it. So it is available now for everyone to read, which I think is a great thing because for, in my mind, it's one of the best memoirs ever written about and, and really documents about Hollywood. So what do you think in the end? What is What do we take from her story? The story of someone who really didn't quite make fame, although she made a fair amount of money in Hollywood, but nevertheless, behind the scenes was influential in, in a number of interesting ways. Yes, I think that's true. I think she had a sort of shadow influence on Hollywood that, that still exists. Um, but really, for me, as a, a figure of great um, moral purity, I don't want to make her sound like a saint, because she wasn't a saint. She was a human being who made all kinds of mistakes, as we all do. She suffered from depression, which she called combat fatigue. She was not a perfect person, but in my mind, she had a sort of moral compass and an ability to um, feel compassion for people who needed help and to go out of her way, use her tremendous energy and life force to help those people in any way she could, um, was dedicated to the cause of anti-fascism her entire life, um, and uh, sort of used whatever influence that she had, which was quite significant at certain points, um, to, to really make people's lives better. And that was what really drew me to her story, um, along with the fact that she happened to know the great figures of the 20th century that really as Stan Berman, the playwright and screenwriter, said, there, there was a confluence of people at her house that was more artists than you would have seen at, in Renaissance Florence. It, was, it had never happened before, and it will never happen again. And really, it was, as everyone came to Rick's in Casablanca, everyone came to Salka's in Santa Monica, including the entire cast and crew of Casablanca, who were very <laughs> happy to eat her chocolate cake and, and swap stories with, with uh, German intellectuals. link to Donna Rifkin's The Sun and Her Stars will be in the show post at nitreville.com. Thanks to my guests, Ben Modell and Donna Rifkin. Music is by Kevin McLeod. 
Thanks for listening, and thanks for the three new reviews at Apple Podcasts. If you haven't left one yet, please do. They help new folks discover this podcast, and from there, all the cool things we talk about. We'll be back in a few weeks. We sure hope.